Good morning. Let's pray together. Holy Father, you alone are worthy. Of all the things in this world, nothing compares to you. And God, we come together this morning to worship you, to exalt you, to give you the place that you deserve in our hearts, but also to learn more about you, to grow in our love for you, to sharpen each other. And God, I thank you that we can be here together to do that. God, we pray that as your word is opened, that you would speak, and that each of us would be careful to hear, that you would be king in our hearts, over our lives, over everything that you've entrusted to us, and everything in this world. God, you alone are sovereign, and we pray that you would be honored in our time together. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So for, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Josh Vida. I, uh, I attended here through all of my teen years and all of my college years. And the fact that you have not disowned me is a blessing. That's uh, a miracle from God. Uh, those are the often most difficult years to put up with someone. So I so appreciate this church family. I so appreciate being back here. Um, in the past three years, it's been three years actually since the last time I spoke here, almost to the day. It's been three years and three days. And you know what that means, right? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> three is a significant number, but not here. Um, but in that time, uh, I've taken a job at Cornerstone University, and I work in online curriculum. And one of the one of my favorite parts of the job is I get to see how the Christian faith relates to the subjects that we teach in all of our curriculum. So uh, we have programs in psychology and in education and in management. And, and so for each of these, I get to say, well, how does this relate to what God's doing in the world? How does this honor God? How do we honor God in these subjects? Where does the faith meet with everyday life? What does... Sunday have to do with Monday. Um, accounting is also one of those subjects, and I'll confess, Dr. Weirich, it's a challenge at times, but, but God is also very interested in accounting. Um, but one of the keys to understanding how Christ relates to culture, how the church relates to the world, has to do with the doctrine of the kingdom. And that's the doctrine that I want to talk about with you this morning. Um, and we're going to talk about it in Matthew chapter 10. And if we can get through all of Matthew chapter 10 today, it will be a miracle. Um, I don't, I'm not into performing miracles myself, but if God wants to do that, then that's, that would be great. Um, but here in, in Matthew chapter 10, we're going to see four things about the kingdom. We're going to see the mission of the kingdom. We're going to see the sign of the kingdom. We're going to see the cost of the kingdom, and that's big here. And finally, the hope of the kingdom. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, and I'll go ahead and start reading in verse 1. And he, being Jesus, called to him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, 
James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You have received without paying, give without pay. We'll pause there for a moment. This passage, chapter 10, is one of the great discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. It's one of the big speeches that Jesus gives. And it's called the missionary discourse because this is where Jesus sends out the twelve. This is a new mission that he's sending them on. But it's, in a sense, not a new mission. He's sending them. That's the unique part. But this is actually the mission that Jesus has been on all through the Gospel of Matthew already. In fact, if we back up just a few verses to verse 35 of chapter 9, we could see Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Sound familiar? Jesus is sending the apostles to go out and do what he's been doing and he's been modeling for them. Uh, there's one exception, though, and after Sunday school, I, I wish I'd studied up on it a little more. He doesn't tell them to preach in the synagogues. Uh, that's something that's a little different, and I'm not entirely sure why, because they will eventually. But at this time, the focus is on the message of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the gospel of the kingdom, and then performing these miracles. These are miracles of healing, miracles of resurrection, They were taking care of people just the way that Jesus did. Now, in order to understand why and what, what's going on here, you really have to understand what this whole message of the kingdom is. It's here, it's in chapter 9, it's what John the Baptist taught, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's what Jesus taught after his temptation, he began preaching, the kingdom of heaven is near. What does that mean? For most of my life, I didn't really know. I knew that Jesus was coming back, and so there's a kingdom coming. But what does the kingdom look like now? How can it be near when it's 2,000 years ago, and here we are? Well, there are a lot of verses that we could use to talk about this, but I think the the best uh, is in Hebrews 2. And I'll go ahead and read that for us. In Hebrews chapter 2, The author of Hebrews is speaking here, and he's quoting Psalm 8. And he says in verse 6, It has been testified somewhere, that is, the Psalms, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything subject to him. We'll stop right there. That's, I don't know about you, but that's an incredibly difficult passage for me, but incredibly insightful. The kingdom of heaven is here in the sense that All things are subject to Christ now. He is king now. There's nothing else that needs to happen for Christ to be king. 
He is our Lord. He is our ruler. And what Psalm 8 is talking about is here, God has entrusted all of, hum- all of creation to humanity to take care of it. But now, now it's come to one particular human. Now it's come to one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so he is king over all of creation. He has inherited that as a human being. But he's also king, of course, because he's God. Um, I think we take that for granted. But he's king in this human, earthly sense, too. He has every right to be called king that anyone could ever have. And so, why is it that we struggle? If Jesus is king, why is it that we still suffer? If Jesus is king, why is it that people get away with murder? I don't have to read you headlines to show you that the world is a very troubled place, and if Christ is the king of that, then how on earth can he be a good king? Well, that's where this hope comes in in verse 8 here. At present, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. That's not a surprise. God is not at all surprised that things don't look the way the kingdom is supposed to look. This is the time of God's mercy, the time where Christ is waiting to establish justice. He's waiting to come back and make all things new. And so we live in this tension between what scholars call the already and the not yet. He is already king. But he's allowing us latitude so that more can be saved. So this in-between place is where we find ourselves, and it's where the disciples found themselves back in chapter 10. They're sent out with this mission that the king has arrived, but he's not yet ready to whip everyone into submission, so to speak. So this is the message of the kingdom. The king is here. And the message for us is the king is coming back. But one thing as we read this passage, we have to keep in mind, Jesus, as he's talking here, he's not talking to us. He's talking to the disciples. We get to listen in on it and benefit from it. Jesus is not telling us to go to all the towns of Israel. He's not telling us to go heal people miraculously. Um, He lists 12 people right here that this message is specifically to. But as Christians, we are on the same mission. We may not have the same parameters in that mission, but the same principles are true for us. And so the first principle is that we need to go and declare that the kingdom of heaven is near. And so the way that I like to think of it is the mission of the kingdom is to make sons of the kingdom by spreading the word of the kingdom. See, the king right now, his rule on earth, it's in our hearts. Those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, where the world gets to see what the kingdom looks like, that's in you and me. That's where Christ is on the throne. And so as we live out what it means to be subject to Christ, and as we make other people aware of Christ and his rule, as we help other people come to faith, we expand the kingdom. He's king of everything, but we make things more obviously his. All things are not in subjection to him yet, but we as individuals choose to subject ourselves to him, and so we expand the kingdom 
in that way. Other ways that we do this as the kingdom um, in our own lives is, is not just personal, but it's, it's our possessions. It's not just our possessions, it's our jobs. This is the positive relationship between the church and the world, is that we, as we live in this world, we live in subjection to Christ, we, we manifest what the kingdom is going to look like, what it should look like. And now we're getting into the sign of the kingdom. Let me continue reading here in uh, verse 9. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy... Let your peace return to you. Jesus sends these men out, and he sends them to heal, but he also sends them to do, to do good, not to, to, to go rely on the hospitality of others, but also to be good guests. The early church used the apostles here as a model for understanding how to recognize a false prophet, because they would have traveling prophets. We don't have that as much today but they would have traveling prophets who would go through and um, if they stayed more than a few days, you you knew they were not from God. If they asked for money for the road, you knew they were not from God. If they said one thing, but they lived a different way, you knew they were not from God. And so it's not just these miracles, but it's the sign of a good life that testifies to the truth of the message. And that's really the role that these miracles are playing here. It's a twofold role. The signs are gifts to those people who are suffering. By healing people miraculously, he's bringing goodness into their lives. He's restoring them. The twelve get to restore these people. But then also, they testify to the truth of the message. Not only do you get the practical benefits of, I just got healed of my problems. But I can say, you know what? No one can do these things unless they come from God. And so this message is a message that is true. The king really is here. You hear a lot of people say that the king is is here. That a new savior has arisen. But unless they have the signs to go with it, they don't believe. This is what you see also in the Gospel of John. If you go through, and we don't have time, but if you you read through the Gospel of John, there are multiple chapters where you see, well, the people believed in Jesus because of his miracles. They believed in his message because he turned the water into wine, because he turned a few loaves and fishes into a feast. After that feast, they said, This guy with his miracles, we want to make him king. We believe that he is the king. And so these signs that they're doing, they're to benefit the people, but they're also to validate the message. And for me, this is one of the more challenging parts of this passage, personally, because this this challenge... It's to be outstandingly good. 
We don't do the miracles that the apostles gave. If, you're, if your name is not in this list of 12 people, then you have not been cleared to raise the dead. You have not been cleared to heal the sick. Now, God still does miracles. Don't get me wrong. We should still pray for these things. We should still expect God to do these things. But these are not gifts that we possess. So the gift that we have in order to validate the message is that subjection to Christ the King. And I hate, hate, hate that part of this message because I am so committed to the gospel of grace. You are not accepted because you're a good person. You are not accepted by Christ because you're his best subject. You are accepted no matter who you are. You are accepted by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And so this is not a call to be perfect so that God will accept you. But this is a call that once he has accepted you, you must change. I like the acceptance part. The acceptance part helps me sleep at night. But we have to change. I think it's interesting when the disciples go out into these towns, they're supposed to find the person who's most worthy. Maybe not most worthy, but at least a worthy person and stay with them. How do they know who is worthy in the town? Was it because they were always gone on Sunday morning? There was no car parked in the lot? So they knew that was the most worthy person. They go to church. I have to believe that if you go to the, a town, as they would have, if they walked there and they said, who's worthy in this town? This is word of mouth. This is, well, so-and-so has a good reputation. So-and-so is always putting people up in his home. So-and-so is always giving to the poor. That's the worthy person. The p- disciples were looking for people with good reputations in the community. And it's not that because they were saved. It was in order to connect with them, because hopefully they would be receptive to the message. But I wonder if someone came to the block where I live and asked, who's the worthy person? Is anyone worthy? Would they think of me? Does my block know that a little piece of the kingdom resides on the corner? Does it really? Or is it just hiding? The apostles are there to do good. And they're there to find people of reputation, to build reputation. And this is all we have. Is that in order to proclaim this message, we have to validate it with our lives. Nothing undermines the gospel message more than people who say they believe and don't live it out. So the sign of the kingdom is obedience to the king. Again, it doesn't get you in the door. Only grace and faith will do that. But this is the expectation of the king, is that you become a subject of his kingdom. So again, this is a positive relationship to culture. This is the part of culture that um, that really loves us. When we do things that are nice to them, we're their best friends. Uh, and I'm really moved by a, an account of an early church apologist. His name is Athenagoras of Athens. 
But while the church was being persecuted, he wrote a letter to the emperor and he said, listen, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, you think we're committing incest, but really we just call each other brother and sister because we're, you know, one family in Christ. We're not actually married to our brother sister. Um, we don't actually eat babies. We, you know, we eat the communion, which is symbolically Christ. We're not actually eating the baby Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. But he would say these things. There are all these misunderstandings. But the thing that he said at the very end, the thing that made it all make sense was this. Oh, king, look at us. We are your best subjects. We take care of the people no one else wants to take care of. We pray for your rulers. We may not participate in your religious festivals, but we pray for your rulers. We pray for your people. We're not the ones tearing the town down in mobs and, and debauchery. We are your best subjects. He could say that with a straight face because that was the witness of the early church. They believed that they needed to live in subjection to the king. I know for my part, I fear that sometimes I lose that part. But the point is this. What king wouldn't want to see that message? What king would not want to say, oh, well, Christians, uh, hmm, we could get rid of you, but look what would happen if we did. Who would take care of the poor? Who would take care of the sick? Who's left but all the rowdy people? So this is the positive relationship. This is what we contribute to culture and the culture loves. But there's also a negative side to the relationship. And this is the cost of the kingdom. And the cost of the kingdom is this. When you align yourself with the king, the powers that exist don't particularly like that. Let's continue our reading in verse 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, if they've called him the king of demons, how much more will they malign the members of his household? The cost of the kingdom is this. When you align yourself with the king, you get what the king got. Do you remember when the Magi visited King Herod and said, where's the king who has been born king of the Jews? 
We want to go worship him. Herod say, well, yeah, let's saddle up. Let's go. Let's go find the king and worship him. No, Herod had an entire town and all the children in it wiped out. All the infants under a certain age. He wiped them out because he wanted to protect his kingdom. He was not looking for God to establish a new kingdom. He wanted his own power. And that has not changed. The powers of this world are not interested in being undermined by another authority. Jesus also convicted people of their sin by his example, by his message. Who really loves being convicted of their sin? And you all have the Holy Spirit. The world without the Holy Spirit does not like it any more than you do. And what we see the king got was mockery, death threats, torture, execution. When you align with the king, you get what the king got. Are you ready for the cost of the kingdom? Now, when Jesus is warning his disciples that this is going to happen, he says, you know, there are some people who are, are going to be apathetic. That's fine. Just move on. Don't, don't spend too much time on them. Don't let them stop you from going to others who might listen. But he does say that there are a whole lot of troubles out there. People are normally going to come after you, at least if you're doing it right. And if you look at it, the synagogues, the 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 leaders, these are, these are your religious leaders, your civil leaders, your political rulers. Everyone will be against you for his name's sake. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that Christ has called us to do battle, to do war with the world. He's called us to love the world. He's called us to do as he did, bring the message of healing, the message of hope, the gospel. But when you align yourself with the king, the world, the unbelieving world, declares war on you. That's how it goes. The cost of the kingdom is that we must take sides. It's not Christ against creation. Christ against progress. It's Christ against, as Ephesians 6 says, the the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The danger is unbelief, and it's unbelief that has power. And that power is out to destroy the kingdom of light. Now, in our context... There are some signs that persecution is, is ramping up. The world's getting a little tired of some of our moral stances. It's put up with them for quite a while, and now they're going a different path. But I think the greater danger that we have is not so much that we're in danger of persecution today, that, that anyone's going to barge down these doors and try to do to you what the Jews did to Jesus. The problem is, no matter how little God asks, our temptation is to love the things of this world more than him. And that's where the choosing sides part gets tricky. I've been reading uh, the book The Silver Chair with my daughter Avery uh, recently. Um, She may be a little young for the Chronicles of Narnia, but 
They have talking animals, so that wasn't in. But the silver chair really stands out to me this time as I read through it. Um, It's a very bleak book. There's a lot of cold, dark imagery in this book. And it's all in contrast with the villain in this book, who is beautiful. She's a witch with a musical voice. And when they confront her, she has this perfumed fire. And she plays the stringed instrument. And everything about her is designed to lull them into a false sense of security. Everything about her is to attract them away from this very difficult task that Aslan has sent them on. And I really have come to believe that this metaphor, this this analogy that C.S. Lewis was painting with this book, this is our lives. Following Christ is a whole lot like walking through dark and cold places and trying to defend ourselves against very beautiful things in this world that are not aligned with him. This won't encourage you, but the way our heroes um, defeat the witch, to break the spell, is through pain. So uh, God bless that to uh, your understanding. But there is this truth here. Suffering well makes you a better sign of the kingdom. If you want to stand out, when all of us are trying to be good examples and all of our neighbors are also being good examples, whether or not they have Christ, it's not so much the everyday that's going to make you stand out. It's when the suffering comes. How do you respond? That's how you stand out in contrast with the world. So the message of the kingdom, the mission of the kingdom, is to spread the the word of the kingdom and make sons of the kingdom. The, The sign of the kingdom is obedience to the king. The cost of the kingdom is conflict with an unbelieving, unsubmissive world. Now we come to the hope of the kingdom. The hope of the kingdom is this, that all the suffering and pain that we endure has purpose. Because all will be made right. Let's turn back here to verse 26. After he's just told them, everyone will be out to get them and they will kill you and things will not go well. He says, so have no fear of them. Really. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Much of chapter 10 is about the cost of the kingdom. They already know the message, the signs, those are straightforward for them. What they needed to face was the cost. 
But the cost has a context. The cost has a purpose. And that is the hope of the kingdom. And he does not give them this cost without that context. He says no less than three times here, have no fear. Do not be afraid. How many of you would really love to suffer for Jesus? Some of you already have. Some of you know people who have. This is not an attractive offer. The only way we can do this is because we have the power of the gospel behind us and because we have this promise. Have no fear. This command, have no fear. But it's not a command without reasons. I count no less than six promises in this passage. Six promises that can keep us from having fear. He says nothing is covered that will not be revealed. God knows everything. The truth will always come out. He says, I'm in control. He says, you're more valuable than a sparrow. He says, you are known personally. And he says that he will acknowledge you before the Father in heaven. So however bad things get, God knows. God is able. You are valuable to God. That's a paradox. We don't have time to go down that, par- that road. You as a sinful person, valuable to God. He delights in you. And you will be acknowledged. When danger comes, when... If the worst ever happens... He said, don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body. I'm the one who establishes justice. They will not get away with it. And that is maybe one of the most powerful of all of these. There's nothing, no sin, no no crime that will not be judged, that will not be made right. And so however deep a price you pay, they will not get away with it. No matter how deep a price to pay, you will be compensated. With eternal life, with Christ in this kingdom. It's only because of this hope that we can face the cost. But in order to be a son of the kingdom, or daughter of the kingdom, you have to put your hope in this and not anything else. See, the the hope of resurrection, the hope of Christ's return to make everything new, it often gets drowned out by the other things that we hope for in this world. And he goes through some of these costs here. Let me go ahead and keep reading from verse Um, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I had come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter than me more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is another one of those very challenging passages for me. It's easy to think, or perhaps you could be forgiven for thinking, that Jesus is saying, you should abandon your family in order to follow Christ. That's not what Jesus is saying. There are verses that are very clear that if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. No, family is a priority. But his point is this. If you set your hopes on these relationships, if you love your family more than me, if the time comes to choose, will you choose rightly? If you have to choose between family and Christ. If, well, do, let's do this. Think for a moment about the one person that you love more than anyone else in this world. Could be family or friend. Could be someone close or someone distant. If it came down to it's either him or me, could you let go of that person? Thankfully, I think many of us will not have to make that choice. But Jesus is saying, if you put your hope in a marriage, and if it came down to your spouse saying, it's Christ or me, you have to be so committed to the kingdom, you have to always say, it's him. It's him. This goes back to that cost. This goes back to choosing sides. Christ needs to always be the top priority, always the choice that you choose, and hopefully there won't be a lot of cost with that. Hopefully this is not the sort of price you'll have to pay. The point is not that you have to give up everything in this world. The point is that you'd be willing to if he asked you to. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is actually the first time that the cross appears in the Gospel of Matthew. The first time Jesus talks about the cross, it's not actually about him. It's about us. We know what that means, taking up your cross. The cross means so much to us because we know what Jesus did there. The the, The apostles did not know yet that Jesus was going to the cross. They didn't know that he was going to suffer. He's asking them to suffer anyway. The point for us is not that we will go to the cross, as I said before. The point is, if it came to the cross we would say yes. The point is, if it came to giving up everything, we would do that. That's what the apostles, again, if you you believe the accounts, the tradition hands down to us that when they went to crucify some of the apostles, I forget which one off the top of my head, but 
he has to be crucified upside down. Because for him, it was too great an honor to be crucified the way that Jesus was crucified. Too great an honor. I don't think of the cross that way. I don't. I'm so, so glad Jesus took it for me. I don't know that I'm ready to pay that price. And so the question for me and for you this morning is, where are your priorities? Renouncing Jesus is a terrifying prospect. He says it over and over again, if you, if you don't uh, confess me, if you deny me, then I will reject you. If you reject me, I will reject you. There's a little bit of hope there. Um, the Jews rejected Jesus, and he forgave them. Saul rejected Jesus, and he forgave him. One of these twelve denied Jesus three times. Christ forgave him. It's not too late to acknowledge him and be forgiven. It's not too late to, to make this choice. It's not too late to align yourself with the right side. And what we need to do if we're going to live out this chapter, since we're not being sent out into the towns of Israel, since we're not going out performing miracles, what we have to do is to live a life of obedience that points to the king. We need to live and love this world so much that it can't help but take notice of who sent us. And so the question I think we have to answer is, this isn't hopefully new information, you know that there's a cost to following Christ, you know that we're to bring this gospel message. The question is, what's stopping you? When you think of the cost, what is the cost for you? When you think about loving the world so much that it can't ignore your Jesus, what was the first excuse that came to your mind? I know for years I've been convicted that I need to be more hospitable, especially with my neighbors, to really get to know them, to invite them over, to do things. It's been years now. The thing is, I'm always too busy. I always schedule good things and fill my life with good things. I'm pretty sure they're good things. I mean, maybe you can ask Jenny afterward. She can testify to some and (laughs) reveal a few others. But here's the thing. This life of service that I think I'm living, it's preventing me from doing the things that I believe I should be doing, the things that Christ has called me to do. Are you too busy? Are you apathetic? Are you afraid? Do you think maybe if I just had a little more money, I could afford to be this kind of light in the world. I don't know what the answer is for you. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe if I speak up, I'll be rejected. In some contexts, that's true. I I have the privilege of working for a Christian company, but I have in the past worked for secular institutions. And, I mean, I was already weird, but 
the religion part was weird to them too. And there were always things I was going to be on the outside of because of that. I don't know what the answer is for you this morning. But let's each of us stop and think about that. What is that reason? What do I have to do to take one step closer to being a sign of the kingdom? What price do I have to pay maybe today in order to validate the message that I proclaim with my life? Again, I want to say you're saved by grace. This is not about your acceptance in the kingdom. This is what the king has commanded you to do. Now that you're in the kingdom, this is the calling. The last bit of hope that I see here in the scripture is that the, uh, the rest of this passage here from verse 40 on. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. It's a lot of work to be a sign of the kingdom. It's a lot of work to pay the cost of the kingdom. But the hope that we have is this. If you are in Christ this morning, even if you're not the righteous person that you should be, and I think that's probably all of us, we still have a righteous person's reward to look forward to because we have accepted the most righteous man who ever lived. Whoever receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. That is the gospel. That is our hope. As we receive Christ, we receive the reward that he got. He died the death that our sins deserved so that we could have the eternal life that his righteous life earned. And if for some reason you're here this morning and you have not trusted in him, Come, test and see. Look at the miracles that Jesus did. Look at the life that he lived. Look at the life of the church. And know that he is the king. And he is worth whatever cost is necessary. Can I pray for us? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That is our hope. Your will be done on earth now as it does in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. O King, you are worthy. We pray that our lives would show that, that not just our words, but that the world would see that you are worthy, that you are worth it. And Father, we ask all of these things in the name of King Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.